Hello and welcome. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks so much for tuning in to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, I want to tell you about a celebration of Israel I went to last night. Cannot wait to tell you how great it was. And then we have a candidate from England joining us, a candidate for a, a, from the Brexit Party running for the member of European Parliament by the name of George Farmer, be joining us by phone. And third, I want to have the Brexit movement and the Blexit movement joined in America by the Feminexit movement, the argument to women. We do not have to keep on supporting big government. And at the end, of course, I'll tell you why all these matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm so very, very glad you've tuned in. Last night, my husband and I had the just great opportunity to go to a celebration of Israel here in Dallas. To be precise, Yesterday was the first anniversary of the move of the Israeli, of the American embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the capital that the country actually has chosen as its capital. So, you know, President Trump made that move a year ago yesterday, and so that was a, a great um, celebration uh, a year ago, and that date was actually chosen as the anniversary of, I believe it was the 70th anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel. So we had a year ago, celebration of moving our embassy, and then last night, there was a celebration here in Dallas, uh, one year since the time of the moving of the embassy. Three great things came out about last night about us uh, just celebrating and appreciating Israel. Uh, number one was, there is a group that is made up of Americans, actually now as people around the world, it's called Hayoval, and H-O-Y, excuse me, H-A-Y-O-V-E-L. And the Hayavel, uh, the sons of the uh, founder, have been on that show a couple of times. But Hayavel is a group of, it's a family, in, originally from Tennessee, a farming family, that decided after a visit to Israel that they want to start a mission to bring Christians in America over to Israel to help Israeli farmers during the harvest season. As you likely know in America, we every you know, harvest season, one reason we have so many um, people come out from Mexico in America to work during our harvest season is because harvest time is labor intensive. You simply have to have the people you need on hand at the time of the harvest. And this farmer from Tennessee, while he was touring Israel years ago, realized they don't have enough people in Israel to really work during harvest time. So he started a mission of bringing Americans over. He's actually built a center over there so people from America go over to Israel, they stay at this center, they help the farmers with the harvest season pretty much to harvesting olives and grapes. And they also get to tour Israel and get little side trips to, to see things and meet people. So it's an extraordinary thing. But the deeper point of this Highvel organization is to grow the bond and the connection between the American people, the Christians in America, and I guess any Americans, but mainly the Christian community in America with the country of Israel. So last night, the founder of this organization was at this event we enjoyed in, in Dallas, and he spoke about how it just touched his heart so f deeply the first time he went to Israel, and he was recognizing, looking over these particular areas of Israel, how they, you know, this is a biblical fulfilling of the prophecy of the Jewish people 
being uh, occupying the land of Israel, being having the right to be in their homeland. And um, he also, he had, I can't quote all the Bible passages he had read at his ready, but he talked a lot about the just great value of people in America seeing the, force, the the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and really the place uh, of, of um, Christianity in helping to fulfill that prophecy. By that he meant that it actually has language in the Bible about the grapes, the grape fields and the vineyards and the orchards. So it was, it was a very moving thing. He, he, this particular man, was found, was so inspired after his visit to Israel, he created this organization and now it's grown. They've had, they had all the numbers up, but it was just hundreds of thousands of hours and tens of thousands of American families go. They go over pretty much twice a year, I guess. But it was just a really inspiring thing. And then he even spoke more deeply about the idea that we need to be more clear, embracing, and 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 loving the idea that Christianity grew out of Judaism, that the Christian Bible, that he he's deeply Christian, this guy who founded it, but the Christian faith grew out of these scriptures, the Old and New Testament, and talked about how we need we have been pushed around by false theology, false just false dichotomy into feeling separate. Christians have felt separate from or somehow distant from uh, the Jewish faith, and that in fact we have in common the one God, the, the belief in the Bible that is um, described in the Old Testament and carried through into the New Testament. One God um, who's the father of us all, the father of Abraham and Isaac and, and all of that. So it was a very, very inspiring evening. There were Jewish people uh, in, in the room, a very, very earnest, conservative, almost Orthodox Jews, and a lot of Christians too, all celebrating the kind of reconnection of, of America and Israel through Hayavel. Last thing I'll tell you, it was so interesting. One thing um, that also came out last night, I had never heard this, but back at the time of the founding of America, when our precious, vitally important American founders were thinking through what they should put on the seal, what should be on the um, this seal, which we all know in America, we recognize as the, as the United States seal. Well, I sent to my incredibly wonderful producer, Matt, uh, a, a seal. I, want, I don't know if you can see what this is. This was what you can see on the screen, choice number two that the founders of America considered having as the seal for America. And if you can't tell what it is, it's a depiction of Moses departing the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's troops. In fact, where the picture is, you know, Moses, they've made it across the Red Sea, the, the Israelis, uh, the Jewish people fleeing uh, slavery, and they are on the other side, and Moses is now standing there looking at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's armies have started to uh, make their way in, and around the seal that was this proposed seal, and this was actually the one I think it was Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin both really liked, but the seal, um, the um, insignia around the seal basically talks about we, this country, are founded a re as to be rebellion to tyrants is, and I'm trying to read it in a sheet here, I can't, is obedience to God. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And again, last night they were celebrating America's founding and our founders thinking was about this great and extraordinary idea of one God that really was the reason our 
our uh, forebears came to America to escape religious tyranny, to find a place we could have the right to worship freely, the right to have one God, and the idea that we in, we embellished that, we, we wrote that into our founding documents, including, of course, our precious First Amendment with the religion, uh, freedom of religion. So it was a great and inspiring evening. Um, I put a link up to Hyval's website on my website. So if you go to americacanwetalk.org on the homepage under shows, go down, list of links, you can find a description of Hyavel. Many people in the audience last night had been to Israel on this Hyavel trip thing. It was just truly, uh, truly extraordinary. Great, great time. Okay, and that, my friends, today is today's first five. So, turning now, we have a guest joining us by phone. Uh, this is a gentleman who you'll hear in a moment. His uh, incredibly um, lovely, I love accents. He's got a British accent, but he's here in America. His name is George Farmer, and he was uh, integral and very involved early on in England in creating and working toward the energy of the Brexit party and that was again an acronym collapsed down from British exit from the European Union and he's now a candidate for a place to uh, to serve uh, on the as a member of the European Parliament uh, as a representative of the Brexit party in England so George Farmer I think you we have you online hello hi Debbie can you hear me we can hear you loud and clear it's great hello sir well, I'm so glad you could join us. And there he is on the screen. This is our friend George Farmer. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit more information about him. He spent the last seven years helping run and manage Red Kite Capital Management, a uh, commodities hedge fund specializing in metals. Uh, he was a partner there. Uh, he worked in banking in the U.S. firm. Um, Jeffries, he holds a first-class degree. That's obviously a British name for a college degree. He holds a first-class degree from Oxford, Oxford University in Theology, graduate 2011. He helped start the U.K chapter of the student activist group Turning Point USA. Love them. We've talked about them many times on this show. And he was chairman before stepping aside to pursue other endeavors. He's a former member of the Conservative Party. And uh, he is now uh, began working on this, um, on the Brexit Party. And he has supported a variety of causes in the UK, focusing on veterans, Israel. Oh, you probably like my first five then, Israel, um, and vote leave. He is also engaged to Candace Owens, the American conservative commentator, been on the show a couple times. Uh, and so here he is, George Farmer. Hello again. Hi, Debbie. Great to, great to be with you today. So glad you are here. So I'm just going to jump right in so we um, get maximize our value. I want to go back to the beginning of Brexit, the beginning of the movement in England to urge people to vote for the, uh, for the UK to leave membership in the European Union. Why did you yeah. get behind that? What was all the thinking behind that? I mean, look, the vote to leave in 2016, I draw many comparisons between vote to leave and, and the election of, of Donald Trump as President uh, 45. I mean, there, there was a desire to arrest um, a movement towards uh, the loss of sovereignty. Um, and in the UK, that's particularly felt with the European Union, Thank who you. have slowly over the course of many years eroded the powers of national government and, and drawn powers into a central authority run from Brussels. That's really that was that was the main desire behind most people. Most people felt that they were losing control of their country to unelected bureaucrats who ran a supranational superstate from a country which we had from from an overseas entity which we had very little control over. And that's always that's been the predominant aim. It's it's about reclaiming sovereignty. It's about 
reclaiming traditional laws and values that Britain associated with itself and were not necessarily part of a common European project, which is what the European Union has always pushed towards. That is so well said. I, I love that. It was a great summary. <laughs> I have to tell you, people in America read a lot about Brexit, and there, there is, in my political background, I've been on the conservative side, but I've supported the Tea Party in, in different ways. It was that, it mm -hmm. felt like the same sentiment in America, just kind of, we want our country back. We want sovereignty. We want the government to listen to us. Do you yeah, agree there's yeah. an analogy I mean, there? That's absolutely right. I mean, there, there was there was a very there was a revival. I mean, you know, if you looked at if you looked at the run up to the 2016 referendum in the UK on June 23rd, there were so many people who said it could never happen. We had the big corporations coming out and saying it could never happen. We had the International Monetary Fund coming out and saying Britain would be a disaster if we voted to leave alone. We had all the media outlets. We had the Bank of England. We had the government, we had the opposition to the government, we had every single major political and media and financial pundit coming out and saying that if we voted to leave, the, the UK would become irrelevant, small island, no, no, no play, no player on the big on the world stage. We would become, a, we would basically become a complete backwater. Um, and as has been proved since 2016 when Europe is suffering record unemployment amongst its youth population, Britain has continued to carve a role for itself in the world and continues to play as the fifth largest economy. Um, you know, we continue to remain Europe's predominant defense power. We continue to remain, you know, c crucial to the security of Europe. And yet at the same time, there were statistics coming out before the referendum that, if, that said if we voted to leave, let alone regardless of whatever deal we got from the European Union, if we voted to leave alone, it would cost the economy 700,000 jobs. And yet, since the vote to leave, the UK economy is now at almost record employment. You know, I love that. You know, I um, I printed out, I'm getting ready for today's show, I realize there's so much to read about all the predictions ahead of time and the danger to the people and we're all going to, the country's going to fall apart. And, and then actually what happened was, was just amazingly quite the opposite quite the opposite this and you know i want to go back one more time just kind of understand something you're talking about the uh, a little bit about the sentiment behind brexit and you talked about the traditional roles and values of england the, the traditional culture and all that wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. the same as was being inflicted by the european union or was just different from the european union by that is is it was it a cultural thing too a, a sense of um i mean i think in america i think we have we have this culture of freedom in our country and so we resent big mm. government was it that kind of sentiment about england yeah i mean i think i mean this is a slightly more intangible point and you know commentators will argue over this you know many times many times over but uh, the the, the way that the world the way that capitalism traditionally for example has been defined is that there's an Anglo-American version of capitalism, which tends to be free market, um, a belief in individual entrepreneurial spirit, a belief in freedom, a belief in the in the right of the individual to choose and to, to forge a, a path for themselves. And that stands in pretty stark contrast to Franco-German statism, as I tend to call it, which is that there's the, the French and the Germans have traditionally tended to look at things top down. We must regulate every part of your life um, and the European Union views it, if I came to you with a transaction to do, there's no, they, they, they view it as, a, as their role to regulate that transaction. Whereas if you and I as a British and an American came together 
and we just decided to engage in a transaction. We don't understand. We wouldn't. The cultural difference is that we would say, "Why do we need to have this transaction regulated?" Whereas the French and the Germans would say, "This transaction inherently must be regulated." And that, that that's always a way I think is the best way of looking at it. It's far more. Europe is far more statist. It's got a great. It's got a greater history in uh, sort of socialist statism, whereas Britain and you know, we've we've tended to look further afield. We've tended to look to America. We've tended to look to Australia, to South Africa, to New Zealand, to countries much further away than just Europe to define ourselves. Uh, it's in part because of the history of the country, but it's also in part because of the English language. It's it's united. It's united us to a part of the world which the rest of the continent of Europe has never really been united to in any way, shape, or form. And so over time, that difference has sort of become more manifest and. And now, you know, obviously in 2016, it's that has been that was one of the defining factors. It was it was we could look beyond us. We could look beyond Europe to define our new role in the new world. I'm so glad you said all that. I just I love the whole feel of it. It just just has a feel. I, I use the expression freedom and has many different definitions, but it's just it is a freeing feel. This uh, opposition to statism. That's a word I frequently use in America now, describing the mindset of some in Washington. Okay, so now we we had the Bre- the Brexit uh, vote and they won. I believe it's 51.9 versus 48.1. That was a uh, June. Uh-huh. 20- yeah, June 23rd, which given how much the media and all the powers that be uh, weighed in against it, pretty much of a landslide in favor of leave, it seems like, even though it was close, you know, everyone arguing against it. Yeah. So where are we now in Brexit? We that we had a lot of uh, false starts. Uh, Theresa May had got some involvement and maybe didn't was str- struggling negotiating. Where do we stand on that now on Brexit? <laughs> That's a good question. I think most British people will be pretty confused, too. Um, I mean, yeah, just 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 on your starting point, the the vote to leave fifty one point nine versus forty one point eight. To put that in numbers, that's seventeen point four million people versus sixteen point one million people. Um, just and just to give that some context, no government or any vote in the history of the United Kingdom has ever had seventeen point four million people vote for it in the history of our country. Which means that it was not only the large, it was not only a big majority that that it was voted through by, but it was also the largest democratic mandate that the country has ever received in anything ever. So it was a, it was a huge mandate, and the government was was obliged to take it seriously. And that then leads me on to what you're asking next, which is what's happened next. Uh, basically, the to understand Brexit in the UK, one must understand that the parliament, as it stands, does not represent the will of the people right now. So the majority of the members of parliament, MPs as we call them, were Remainers, and they wanted to remain within the European Union. And the majority of the people wanted to leave. Now, that what we've seen play out since June 2016, so three years coming up to, is effectively a conflict but a democratic conflict between the people and the members of parliament we had over 500 mps vote for article 50 which was the triggering of the of the withdrawal process from the european union they respected the will of the people when it came to that decision what then happened was effectively for the last two and a half years since theresa may has been negotiating uh this withdrawal agreement is that it's become brexit in name only so it's what we call brino which is basically a way, a way in which they can they can they can dress up the idea of us ha- actually having voted to leave 
and present Brexit to the people. But in every, in, in all essence, we are still part of the European Union. In fact, we have actually less say now than we did before. So the, 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 the clean break that one, that one would hope for with the Brexit vote has now in fact become, we are still ruled by Brussels and by the European Parliament, but we have less of a say now than we did three years ago. Now that hasn't actually gone through yet because the, the Theresa May has been trying to push this through with her withdrawal agreement, which has now suffered three crushing defeats in the House of Commons. It's now rumoured that she is trying to warm this up for a fourth attempt by yep. trying to seek some kind of cross-party agreement between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. And if that happens, that would be a complete disaster for both Labour and Conservative, because that would mean effectively that both parties would be selling out their voters who voted to leave. And as a result, both parties will be severely damaged at the next general election, which we, which we would have. Yes, those two parties would be banding together against the people. That sounds so familiar here in America. Okay, but we, <laughs> let, we should move forward in this because I, I think it's so interesting. And it, it, this is, in, in some senses, uh, broader than just in England. We have throughout Europe, you have more of this nationalist movement uh, in a positive yes. way, just saying, we, we have a country, we have a culture, we have an identity. We don't want you, the government, to surrender it. But um, So I, I love that Brexit is doing this. So right now, if we... If Theresa May even tries this, what you just described, and she fails, isn't Brexit still therefore operative, meaning you just leave without some deal? Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, the original agreement was that we would leave on March the 29th, 2019, with or without a deal. Now, what then happened was Theresa May sought an extension from the European Union, which was granted to October the 31st, so Halloween this year. Um, <laughs> now, that would be if her def if her agreement is defeated yet again, which is highly highly likely, then it would probably be the case that we would again try and aim for no deal. But the trouble is, is, is as I said, is that what happens is that every time we get close to no deal, the Parliament, which is majoritarily made up with uh, with Remainers, people who don't want to leave the European Union full stop and certainly don't want to leave without a deal, keep overriding the will of the people by extending it more and more and more. And the European Union is more than happy to oblige this because whilst we are still in the European Union, we're still paying into the budget, we're still contributing to European Union infrastructure projects, we're still contributing to their defence, we're still contributing to their fishing and their farming budgets. So at the moment, the European Union certainly has no interest in us leaving. And whilst they have this uh, government in the UK, whilst they have a, a House of Commons in the UK, it's not just the government, it, it, it's MPs of all parties, whilst they have these MPs who are still determined to keep us within the European Union, this has meant that every time an extension comes up, it's approved. So what's been happening is that this has just been being pushed out further and further and further. So whilst the agreement may continue to be defeated, um, it's then a case of will at some point, at any point, will the government in the UK of whatever shape or size approve a no-deal Brexit, which is where we now need to get to. You have to have their approval to, to leave. No, we, we, can, we can leave, but we cannot leave without... If the, if the UK Parliament continues to delay Brexit, we will not leave. If the, if the UK oh. Parliament continues to, to ask for extensions, which they have, which they have done up till now, 
then we won't I do see. that deal. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, this is this is so fascinating for Americans and, and watching the process of, of people fighting to have the people um, represented and have their wishes carried out by the government. It happens here too. But I'm going to turn out, you're, yeah. a, you're a candidate actually now. You are uh, going to be running. You are running um, in, yeah. a, in a, an election that I think is May 23rd. Um, and you're running Correct. as the uh, representative of the Brexit Party for a seat on the European Parliament. Is that correct? Mm. Correct. That is correct. Okay. So you would be essentially trying to get more of the Brexit mindset into the European Parliament by being correct. there. Is that the, that's the reason to do it? Correct. I mean, not that I expect many of your listeners, nor in fact yourself, would ever watch uh, videos of the debates within the European Parliament chamber because they're not very interesting. But there was there was quite a funny video not so long ago where the leaders of the European Parliament, in fact, got up and gave a speech. Or one particular leader, Guy Verhofstadt, who used to be the former uh, Belgian Prime Minister, got up and gave a speech saying that we they should at all costs keep the Brexit Party out of the European Parliament by getting Britain to. To, to agree to withdraw before May 23rd. Oh. I mean, the, 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 general, the general feeling, and I mean, this is, and this is slightly more broader European, um, broader European thematic here, is that there is a, a drive across Europe, not just in Britain, but across the whole of Europe, within Italy, within Spain, even within Germany, within France, within Sweden, within all the major European powers, there is a sudden drive of whatever you like to do, however you like to define this term, but populist parties, national populist parties, who are seeking to reclaim the sovereignty of their countries from this international, supranational, super state of Brussels. And, and this is going to be a really dramatic change, which you're going to see May 23rd across Europe. Italy particularly is going to be a very hot spot. Matteo Salvini, the um, interior minister for Italy, has been leading a real revolution over there. You've got the Vox Party in Spain, which is becoming an increasingly big player and big force. You've got the Swedish Democrats in Sweden, who are becoming a bigger force. You've got the alternative for Deutschland, which is now the official opposition within Germany, and that's a co and that's a multi-party system. So for them to be the official opposition designates them to be in a, a particular player there. You've got the Freedom Party in Austria, and you've got France with Emmanuel Macron now trailing in the polls and in, in abysmal numbers there, and, and we'll have to wait to see what sort of populist revival happens in that part of the world. But across Europe, you've got these you've got these parties which are seeking to reclaim sovereignty because they recognise the damage that the European Union, and particularly for those countries within the eurozone, i.e., those which accept the euro as a currency, mm -hmm. those countries are being severely damaged now by the European Union. And so you're seeing this rise of populist parties across Europe. And the Brexit Party, um, which is obviously led by Mr. Farage, um, and that, that is our manifestation. We should never have had to fight these elections. We should never have had to fight these elections within Britain. And yet, at the same time, we are now being asked to fight them three years down the line from the biggest democratic mandate in the history of the United Kingdom. So the, the anger within the UK is palpable because people can suddenly see that this is not just about Brexit. It's not just about leave or remain anymore. It's now about democracy. It's now about democracy being respected within our country. And as a result, people from both the left and the right, I mean, those metrics to some extent have now become kind of useless in the UK. It's not about left and right anymore. It's about, it's about democratic versus globalist in some ways. And as a result, 
the people are flocking to the Brexit party. The latest opinion polls had them at 34% in the European elections. And that's for a party which was established only a few weeks ago, um, which is remarkable in, the, in, a, in, a, in an election which fields multiple parties. So in the UK for the European elections, it's traditional that five or six parties would, would stand forward. And for the Brexit party to be leading so clearly in these European elections, it's a given indica- it gives a great indication of how how much anger is felt towards the establishment who have consistently denied the will of the people. You know, you already answered my next question, and I'm glad you jumped into all that, but that is exactly what I was going to go to, is these polling, the polling is showing in the UK that the Brexit candidates for the European Union Parliament have taken the lead. I mean, taken the lead among other long-standing parties, probably well-known, yeah. well-known parties. This is the spirit of the people basically saying, to this ruling elite mindset, you're not going to ignore our vote. You're not going to act like we did. I just, I, I have to commend you for that. And I want to remind our listeners too, on March 28th, we had um, Katie Hopkins and Elizabeth Savage wolf in studio talking about, you know, the mind, the, what's happening in Europe and the whole notion that we have more and more people being part of the populist, nationalist, we want to define our country. And they said, keep your eye on these elections that are now upcoming in May 23rd. These elections, mm-hmm. that are, they, were, they were saying, this is, this is very much of a, a bellwether about whether this, this uh, drive for, for populism, this drive for your country, redefining your country, really has a majority behind it or not. Because it's gonna, it's gonna impact what happens in the EU elections. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, that, that, that that is a key talking point here, and I think, you know, Europe is in for a big shock. And I mean, you know, there is a there is a degree to which the Brexit Party is now reflecting a much broader sentiment within British society, which is that it's these the main parties, the traditional parties of the UK, Labour and Conservative, who have been the dominant ruling parties for basically the last hundred years, if not longer. Um, these parties are now part of the problem. You know, in the same way that Donald Trump talked about draining the swamp, you know, that was, that was one of his key mantras in becoming president. And there are great, um, there are great comparisons between that and what is now seen as the Westminster bubble. Um, you know, Westminster, that, which is obviously where the British Parliament is, is held within London. And it's now seen as pe- pe- people are almost having sort of pull on the road to Damascus moments of conversion here. You know, they're, they're, they're seeing the light shine around them and suddenly going, hang on a sec, these, these two parties who have claimed to represent the people for the last hundred years are actually a huge part of the problem because they do not represent the people. They have been in power far too long. They've got far too comfortable. It's very much a swamp. It's perhaps not much of a, a financial swamp as it is in the U.S. because of the, the, the lack of political lobbying that we have in the UK. But nonetheless, these, these politicians who are sent to Westminster by the people have very little interest in respecting the will of the people. And as a result, it's, not, it's now also the case that the Brexit party is polling substantially sort of at, close to a point where it could even start taking huge numbers of seats in a general election. And that is something that has never, that's always something that's not happened in a, I mean, we're looking back to the start of the labor movement in the UK, which would be at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. So you're talking in the early 1900s. The last time a party burst onto the scene to seize real control of the national debate was, was at the beginning of the 1900s. And the Brexit party is now polling in the, in the early 20s 
for a general election. That is a huge, huge number. We are talking about a, a seismic shift in the way that British politics is undertaken in, the, in, in Westminster. And, and that is going to have lasting ramifications for, for years to come because people are now realizing, as I said, that why, why would you vote conservative? You know, as, as you said at the beginning, I, I was a member of the Conservative Party. You know, I, my family have been both backers of the Conservative Party. We've, I've, I've supported the Conservatives. I've con- canvassed for the Conservatives. I've given money to the Conservatives. And, and, and now I would say, why on earth would I ever do that again? These people have not represented me, and they, and they continue to rely upon me. They continue to rely upon my vote uh, and, you know, and all the other support. But at the same time, they're not, they're not enacting the will of the people. And that's hugely troubling for the majority of the British populace who are now waking up to this. So it's, it's a very interesting time in British politics right now. It most certainly is. George Farmer, you are extremely well-spoken. I love the way you've helped all of us understand better what's happening uh, in the UK in this upcoming election. We will watch this election, this uh, election on May 23rd, see how all the races go, see how the UE is hopefully reconfigured by some of the uh, candidates from the various parties and countries you, you mentioned. And um, thank you for so much for your spirit of fighting for freedom. I just love it. Not at all, Debbie. Thank you for having me on. Great talking with you. Thank you, George Farmer. Great. Cheers. Thanks, everybody. Okay, bye-bye. I should have said cheers, rats. I love that British accent. I will close this by saying I didn't, you know, that's about the agreement of our length of the interview, but I wanted to mention he, George Farmer, is engaged to Candace Owens, who is a founder of Blexit, which is the black and Latina exit from, you know, the Democrat Party. And so you know, Brexit meets Blexit. These two are engaged. It's, it's a very compelling story. And um, and he's just obviously in his own right, extremely well-spoken. And she's a leader here in America, speaking up about what Brexit needs, what Blexit needs to mean in America. I'm probably going to cover some, I guess maybe after the elections in the um, uh, in the EU, May 23rd, but I'll close this segment about George Farmer to say, I started doing some reading today about Brexit and what got it all started, and it's the most astonishing thing. It's the most astonishing thing. The EU, the European Union, is really just a lot like the administrative state in Washington. They actually had, after years of litigation, because the EU sets regulations on what can be sold what, and, 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 and all sorts of things related to commerce. And the EU you know, was the governing authority uh, higher than the governments of these other member countries. So chocolate manufacturers in England had a years long, years and years and years long court battle over the right to sell chocolate made in England into the European market because they didn't use the right kind of cocoa or butter, whatever it was, whatever it was, it was something like, something that sounded like something the EPA or the FDA would come up with in America. I mean, just these, just controlling, niggling, detailed, and, and never to budge and, and, and unresponsive and don't care what the people want and don't care what the people think. This is the attitude. This that particular incident was several years ago, but this this article I was reading earlier today was just saying, you know, Brexit really started in the minds of many people in um, in the UK decades ago. Just this, just frustration with the European Union, frustration with their uh, very much like the administrative state in Washington in America. Just this, we don't listen to the people. We don't really care what you think. We're going to do whatever you want, and you're going to have to battle it out in court for years and years to get the government to listen to the people. And that, my friends, was George Farmer, candidate for, he's running now to become a member of the European Parliament 
on behalf of the Brexit party, that party has catapulted to the lead in polling in England, uh, much to the chagrin, I'm sure, of many members of parliament uh, and all the other establishment over there in England. So, George Farmer, it was great talking with you. Now I want to turn to the last story for today. You um, may have um, had a, uh, you know, you've heard us talking about Blexit, which is the black and Latina exit from the Democrat Party. This is an effort pushed uh, and really uh, birthed by the fiance of George Farmer named Candace Owens. She has been going around the country talking about just the vital importance. Uh, and she is speaking, she's African-American. She's speaking to the black communities around America, essentially saying... Stop thinking that you're owned by the Democrat Party. She is trying to bring the message. It's again, it's a very similar message, uh, paralleling really the kind of message that was being given in Brexit, the British exit from the European Union that George Farmer is talking about. In Blexit, Candace Owens has been basically saying, you know, what the Democrats have sold African Americans is just a sense of you simply must always vote Democrat. The Democrat Party will continue to produce new government assistance programs and, and new um, new ways to make you more dependent. And that she, she Candace Owens, argues in speaking to audiences that, you know, she just says you sh we should think for ourselves. Why is it? Why do we think the Democrat Party owns the black vote in America? Why? Don't we get to think for ourselves? And she points out that she, and she often will ask these large audiences she speak to, speaks to, name one thing the Democrat Party has ever passed or given or done for black America. What is it they've done? They, Democrats try to scare black voters by telling them that there's racism under every rock, it's a horrible country, and that they, the Democrats, are the only ones that are ever going to save the uh, black Americans from this rampant racism. They, they feed and foment resentment, distrust, fears of racism uh, among the black community. They pass policies that simply, as uh, my good friend Star Parker has said, and she wrote a book about it called Uncle Sam's Plantation. She points out, Star Parker points out, Candace Owens points out, the Democrat Party's hold on the black vote in America is largely due to enticing them into dependency, into creating government programs where people begin to feel the government is the source of your housing, your health care, your education, the food on your table, the money you have. People become dependent on programs the Democrats create, and then when the voting time comes around, they have that swath of voters who will just go with them, with the Democrats, because they want those programs to continue. Star Parker does a brilliant job inspiring people of, of all backgrounds, but Star Parker is very focused in the black communities in America, just saying essentially, you know, you, we, you, your life can be better. You deserve more. You deserve better. You deserve a life where you can find your way in the American dream. You deserve a quality education, a quality public school education, and you deserve an education that will lead you to the potential of having a job. And she inspires Christian values. She, Star Parker, inspires Christian values. The idea about stay in school. Don't have kids until you're married. Don't get married. Don't have kids until you're at least 20. Stay with your families. Don't let families fall apart. At the most recent Blexit rally that Candace Owens uh, did in Dallas, and I, which I did go to, is really, really great. She had a speaker talking about this very point that the culture that says that, that just inspires single parent homes 
that dependency in the government can make can make things okay so the you don't really have to have a dad and mom in the home that it really has ended up hurting children families it ends up hurting the black community so star parker's on this message candace owens is on this message and it's a really interesting thing in brexit the same in the british exit the same kind of feeling of you know it's a resurgence of this uh, their culture their identity the sense of of the belonging to a free market economy a sensible and he was contrasting he george farmer contrasted with what England has as its history and this notion of, of living in, in, in independently and, so, and being self-reliant, contrasting it with the mindset of much of Western Europe. And he mentioned particular Germany and uh, one other country he mentioned where he just said, there's a lot of statism in that thinking. There's just whatever the issue is, the government will take care of it, we will regulate it, we will control it. That statism mindset, which he is saying is just contrary to the mindset of England, the culture of England, which led him to become involved in Brexit. So I want to tell you that I think we need in America, as we come up on the 2020 elections, we need to have the feminexit. We need to expand Blexit, Black and Latina exit from the Democrat Party, Brexit, the exit of the uh, of the country, the UK, from the European Union, and we need to have in America feminine exit. We need to break the stranglehold the Democrat Party has on the women's vote in America. Many of the same tactics, lies, perceptions are used by those in power on the American left to keep women locked on to the Democrat Party's policies, messages, programs, and voting, even when those policies do not help women. We need to be part. If you listen to the show, you're going to guess you're conservative, you're Republican, you listen to the show because you care about America. We all need to be in the bandwagon of spreading the idea that feminexit is the next step. It's the next step of freedom the next step of speaking up for what America is supposed to be and recognizing, exposing what the left does in order to make women feel it's the only thing they can possibly do is support the Democrat Party, that somehow what the Democrats stand for, this big government control over society, that that's somehow the best thing. I want to hit a couple great good facts that are recent in terms of women waking up in this country and realizing that we actually can think for ourselves that women ought to think for themselves, that women should not vote lockstep with big government Democrats. One piece of good news, in the first um, three months of this year, so the first quarter of 2019, where people are making contributions to the political candidates who are going to run in 2020, women are behind almost half of the individual Trump contributions in the first three months of the year. Women, say that again, women in America were behind. They were the donors of almost half of the individual Trump contributions in the first three months of the year. Donations to President Trump's you know, re-election re, re in 2020 are way up with, among women. And um, in fact, it was more than 45% of itemized individual contributions to Trump's campaign came from women. Women accounted for nearly 1.5 million in Trump contributions. Contributions to Trump from women uh, as his, can, his campaign versus all the other Democrat campaigns, more women donating to Trump than to any other individual Democrat. This is huge. And this is, again, going against the, tie, the tidal wave, the lies, the arguments of the 
left-wing media mob that tries to just push the message all the time that you know smart women don't vote with Trump or smart women vote Democrat. Another big issue, going to be a huge issue in 2020, to bring women around to the feminexit idea to start voting for your freedom. Stop voting for the big government leftists in this country that forever and a day grow government, grow government power, grow government control over our, our culture, our freedom, our economy. Vote for freedom means vote, don't vote Democrat anymore. Vote, vote for the party that will stand up for America. Another great sign, suburban women polling shows suburban women are getting behind Trump even though they didn't in 2018 midterms because they've started to realize the Democrats will never secure the border. Get that straight, pass it along. The Democrats will never secure the border. Polling among suburban women up 50 to 50, so 50% of suburban women now support Trump because he is willing to build the wall. And the Democrats in Washington are doing everything they can to keep the border insecure, to keep the border open so we have just a, a mess at the border, unwillingness of the Democrat Party to fund the wall, unwillingness even to fund the efforts President Trump is trying to put forward in the next few months. He asked for emergency money from Congress for the purpose, forget the wall. He said for the purpose of border patrol, for the purpose of making sure we can house and, and safely handle the people pouring over our border. So I think that the immigration issue, border security is a huge issue to make women, to help women wake up and realize the Democrats do not love the idea of America. They do not want a secure border. You can't say you love America and you can't say you respect America and its sovereignty if you won't secure the border. But that's where the Democrats are. Another point that I think is really going to help bring women around in 2020. This is one statistic. 109,000 114, so over 109,000 people were apprehended at the border, our American border, southern border, last month, in one month. Highest number in 12 years. But Nancy Pelosi looks the camera straight in the eye. She looks the press straight in the eye. She looks you and the American people right in the eye and says, we don't have a crisis at the border. And keep that number in mind. This one month, over 109,000, and Border Patrol has estimated time and time again, they only catch between a tenth and a quarter of the people who cross the border. They don't even catch them all. This is just the numbers caught, and yet the Democrats want to tell people that they, that, you know, um, they, they, there's no border problem, don't worry. This is not going to play with sane America. This is not going to play with women. Women want border security. There was also a big conference in Washington. I'm running out of time, so I, and I want to get to my why it matters to you, but there was a big conference in Washington where a Middle Eastern group, women standing up for Middle Eastern women, did a big conference in Washington saying that President Obama, his presidency, his attitude toward radical Islam created ISIS, President Obama created ISIS, and President Trump encouraged Sharia law, which is hurting women around the world. Middle Eastern women saying Trump is the guy standing up for women around the world. There are also just a, a large number of new groups being formed in this country, new groups speaking up for the message that women, intelligent, 
educated women must stop voting for the left-wing radical Democrat Socialist Party that that is now what you have what your choice is in Washington. The Democrats in this country are they are the radical left-wing socialists. Their agenda is not America's agenda. And women need to wake up to that. We need to join. We got to have the feminexit folks join the Blexit and the Brexit folks. And now, my friends, I want to turn to what I always close out the show with, which is our the closing part of the show, which is our Why It Matters to You. And I have Matt has them up on the screen. I'm going to tell you why it matters to you. We talked about Israel's 71st anniversary. There's a vibrant Jewish-Christian reconciliation movement. Israel, America, the connection is biblical, it's historical, it's moral, it's spiritual. It's the bedrock of Western civilization. The U.S.-Israel alliance is a blessing to both and to the world, and there's only one party celebrating that, the conservatives, President Trump, the Republicans. Next on the U.K.'s Brexit, our great interview with George Farmer, U.K.'s Brexit and America's Blexit, these matter. They are both a positive, surging spirit of nationalism, sovereignty, cultural pride, and freedom. UK's Brexit Party is just like our Tea Party, and it's going to win, apparently win a majority of the UK seats in the EU Parliament elections. The spirit of freedom is waking people up in the UK, USA, and... I'm sorry, my, I'm so sorry. That was my own alarm. Uh, in the UK, USA, and everywhere, final point uh, on Feminexit, and this is why it matters to you. Women are not a monolithic voting block. Every candidate, every political party vying has to prove to us their policies work. We are thinkers. Trump's agenda, jobs, free markets, border security, responsible immigration, school choice, school, strong national defense, all of these, love of America, these are, the Trump agenda is the American agenda. It will bring women toward it. The left's agenda, the Democrats' agenda, socialist, open border, globalist, anti-American, big government controlling agenda is becoming very real, very scary and very obvious to the American people. American women love America. We will rally to Trump's agenda. And that, my friends, is my show for today. America Can We Talk. Come back every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Great talking with you. Come back tomorrow. America Can We Talk. Truth about America. Can you hear-